reading from the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called it light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, that plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its, own, its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the book of Genesis 1, 20 through 2, 3. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there is evening and there is morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The word of the Lord. Almighty Father, uh, you say in your word that um, you created us in your own image. And well, that's an easy thing to say, and it's a breathtaking reality to understand, but at our best, we only get glimpses. We only get glimpses of knowing who we are, in part because there's so much more of you to learn about. There's so much more of your beauty to discover. And so we ask that you would teach us something about who we are and what we're called to do by unveiling more of who you are. You're the only one that can unveil who you are. We thank you for these words, this story. We ask that you will be personally active in every one of us to grasp us, to, see, to enable us to see. To see you, and then to see something more of ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. Um, there's a... Uh, there's kind of a set of questions that uh, hang over every one of our lives in one way or in the other. And the questions, these, these questions that kind of hang over our lives um, have something to do with vocation. Uh, what am I supposed to spend my life doing? Uh, what does it look like for me to live a significant life? What am I supposed to be doing? What is my mission in life? What am I supposed to be about? Uh, questions of vocation. And these questions, they start really early in life. Um, you, when you were little kids, especially if, if you grow up in a certain uh, type of family, um, or if you have a certain background, very early you're asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Remember that? Do you remember what you wanted to be when you grew up, when you were 10 or something? Uh, and then as you grow, the <clears throat> The question of vocation changes. It's, it turns into uh, what college are you going to go to? And yeah, there, there's usually a little bit of anxiety that gets uh, inflected into that question at that point. I don't know that you remember that. Maybe you feel that now. Uh, and then as you go through college, it's, well, what's your job going to be? What's your career going to be? Come on. 
and then you get into a job and then it's well what's your next one uh or what's what, what when are you going to get promoted and and then on and on it goes and maybe at the at, at somewhere around midpoint in your life you realize even if you're very very successful the question doesn't go away because you got to ask questions of significance okay maybe i'm successful but is it is there any significance to it at all and that's also a a new shaping to the question of vocation. And most of us realize that in the question of vocation, it's not really just about career and accomplishment and success. The, there's a relationship component to it because we realize somewhere deep inside that it's not, life isn't, can't be just about what we accomplish. There's got to be a relational component that really gives significance to it all and so we think about our careers sometimes but we also think about family and community and relationships and now for some of us even as i bring these questions up there's a little bit of anxiety does it stress you out just a little bit to think about some of these things well why am i talking about it because um we're continuing our series in the book of genesis and I want to show you today how Genesis uh, begins to present a vision for human vocation. And it's a vision for human vocation that's bigger than can what fit in, than can fit inside your career. However, it relates to your career and it'll fill it with significance. And on the other hand, it's a vocation that's bigger than what just fits inside family and yet it also is crucial because it fills family or the community that you engage with it can fill it with deep significance but it's a vision for vocation that builds as your life unfolds and it actually continues even beyond this life so let me show you a little bit about it take a look at the reading and i want you to look at the end of verse 26 excuse me verse 26 says this then god said let us make man in our image after our likeness and then let them have dominion you see that word dominion that's there a little bit down now the word dominion we're going to be thinking about this a little bit it can also mean the word uh it can mean to rule or to reign. There's a, a kingly or queenly aspect here. There's a royal aspect, aspect. There's something of authority that's implied in this word. And if you've been here over the last few weeks, uh, you know that as we've been reading Genesis, we've been remembering that Genesis was addressed to the people of Israel uh, after they had come out of enslavement in Egypt. And therefore, we need to remember that their minds and their imaginations were deeply uh, influenced by the pagan cultures around them, uh, Egypt to the west, Babylon to the east. Now, last week, we talked about the idea of the image of God. One of the things that we said is that in, a, in pagan cultures of the time, an image of a deity is what we might call an idol. Uh, it was a statue or a painting that was imbued with uh, religious significance and the point of this image of a deity was that the image was supposed to represent the deity in the midst of this world one of the remarkable things about the book of genesis is that the god who rescues israel out of egypt says i i refuse to be represented by 
dead stone and lifeless paintings, I, we talked about this last week, I'm going to be represented by living human beings. And we talked about last week how that fills humanity with a remarkable dignity. But there's something that we left off last week that we need to pick up now. When the ancient world spoke about the image of their deity, usually they meant statues or paintings, but not always. There was one human being that could count as an image of the divine. Do you know who that was? You ever heard of King Tut? Anybody? Yeah, King Tut. Uh, he, he was ancient uh, Egyptian pharaoh, uh, died when he was like 19 years old, but had an amazing tomb. And uh, uh, archaeologists dug it up about a, a hundred years ago, and it, the tomb is just filled with treasure. You, you know the story, King Tut. Do you know what his name means? His name isn't King Tut. Tutankhamun. It means the living image of Amon-Re. Now think about the implications of that. Pharaoh, in Egyptian thinking, was a human being with a very special vocation, a human being with a very special calling. He was called to represent his deity, in this case, Amun-Re. The Pharaoh was supposed to represent the character and the purposes and the interests of the deity in the life of Egyptian culture. And it wasn't just about Pharaoh. It was also um, that idea was, was attributed to the other kings of the pagan world. So that if you were a king, then you were an image of the deity and you were supposed to exert your authority in a way that represented the deity accurately. Now keep that in your mind and come back to Genesis. And just imagine what this had to mean for the ancient Israelites. Because in their mind, before reading Genesis, the, uh, the image of Amun-Re was Pharaoh. And they had always been slaves. But now they find out that the God who had defeated Pharaoh and the God who had liberated them had not only given them liberty, had not only canceled their enslavement, but had led them out and now says, from the very beginning, I designed you to be my image. Every last one of you, says the God of Israel to the people of Israel, every last one of you is designed to be my image. God says to Israel, you are, each of you, royalty. And so the commissioning here is that the people of Israel, and of course Genesis applies to all humanity, God is calling humanity to be his kind of divine, rather royal ambassadors in the midst of this world, to know God well and then to reflect him in every area of life. According to Genesis, we are called, we are created, we are designed to know God and spend our life reflecting him. Now, what does that mean in practice? Here's a deal, Emmanuel. A lot of things. Um, as I was w working on this sermon, I felt like I could write, and I actually wrote maybe four or five sermons in different forms, because you could apply this to science. You could apply this to conservation. You could apply this to any number of areas of life. And the deeper you go in each of these, the more you'll discover and the more implications will come forth and the more questions we'll have to ask. But for today, because we're not going to spend all day, 
I want to point out two case studies where this applies. It applies to the area of work and it applies to the area of family. We are called to represent God in both spheres. Let me start with uh, work life. Take a look at verse 29. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. Now, this is another place where paganism is just being turned on its head. Why? Because in pagan mythology, uh, the deities create humanity because they need slaves, because they're hungry. They want house elves. And so that's basically what humanity is within the, most of the pagan systems of the day. We were house elves. Uh, humans, get this, humans produce food for the divinities. But you've got to see that this is the opposite. This God's not hungry. This God has no needs. This God does not create out of insecurity. Rather, this God creates out of unprovoked love, out of his, just his generous grace. You can see that in verse 29. It's not that we give God anything. It's that God gives us everything we need. Now, what does that have to do with work and vocation? Everything. Because it means that we can be motivated for work in a whole new way. Here's what I mean. In paganism, my mindset might be, oh my goodness, the deity relies on me. I better get it right. I better work. I better work hard. I better succeed because if I don't, the divine is going to reach out and get me. Now, we're not pagans. But I wonder if that kind of working anxiety has ever filled your life. But Genesis has a different vision. Genesis says, no, 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 that's not the place, that's not where we start when we come to work. Rather, we need to look at God who in grace gives us everything we need and that frees us and motivates us to work with security, creativity, and generosity. We can work with uh, security, why? Because we know that God's gift and God's grace is what secures our deepest needs and that lifts a huge burden off of us because we don't need to work. We, we, we work out of a place of security and, and everything's been provided and therefore we respond to that. We don't need work to tell us we're okay. God's grace empowers us to work from a place of security. But it also means that we get to work with creativity. Um, the creator God in Genesis creates us to be creative like him. Look back at the text. Um, there's a pattern that runs throughout this entire chapter. Um, God creates something and then God evaluates it and God says that it's good. Um, and what that means there is that what God has done is fit for his purposes. So, for instance, on the third day, there's lots of other days where he does this, but um, God creates vegetation. And when he sees life bursting forth, he sees that it's good. And what that means is that it's doing the thing he purposes it to do. Now, something similar, answerable, happens in our work and in our creativity. Because God commissions us with authority and dominion 
to seek out the same good that God desires, to creatively pursue God's purposes in this world. What does that mean? Well, it includes something like this. We're able to take the raw material of God's good creation, and then we're able to reshape it and reorder it and cultivate it so that something beautiful and purposeful that that aligns with God's purposes comes out in a way that didn't emerge before. So a simple example is a, a farmer cultivates a field and, and grain comes out in the harvest and that grain goes uh, and is milled and then goes to the baker and the baker creates bread that feeds thousands. And God looks at that and says, yep, that's good. That is aligned with my purposes. Or a doctor studies the body and discovers uh, how lungs work in a new depth and with a new insight. And that discovery leads to treatment that allows humans to breathe with new kinds of health. And God looks at that and says, yes, that's in line with my purpose. That's good. Or an entrepreneur uh, begins, has a vision for a new kind of business, and she takes all kinds of risks. And through those risks, a new uh, product is created that serves the interests of humanity and causes flourishing and creates jobs for many, many hundreds of people. And that's a good thing. It's in line with God's purposes, and God says that's good. Or an artist, maybe a musician, takes what might be random sounds and orders them and puts them together in such a way that music emerges that expresses experiences that are too deep to fit into words. And God says, yes, that's good. That's in line with my purposes. Humanity is meant to reflect God's creativity. And we're empowered to use our creative capacities in, line, in, in, in ways that align with God's purposes, and it's good. So our vocation is to reflect God in this world. We can only do that because of God's grace to us. He supplies everything that we ultimately need. And that grace sends us out into the world from a vantage point of security, but pursuing creativity, but also it allows us to work with generosity. Look at verse 28. God says, subdue the earth and have dominion. Now, does that subdue and have dominion? Do those words association game? Does, does that sound positive? Kind of sounds exploitative, doesn't it? It's, it's the opposite. Why? Remember, our vocation is to reflect God in this world. Everything goes weird when we, are, when we operate autonomously from God. We have to reflect who he is. And therefore, the definition of what ruling or exerting authority, that, that definition is shaped by who God is and what God does in the reading. And in this reading, God exercises his authority by creating and giving and bestowing flourishing everywhere he goes. And that's the model for how humans are to exercise authority. And you can apply this to your work. It means that we go to our work with a heart, with an eager to give and to contribute to flourishing. It means we go not just to get a paycheck, but so that we can be empowered to give. 
it means that we are able to walk into work thinking, how can I contribute to flourishing in this place? Given all of its brokenness, given all the complexity, how can I be somebody who gives to the flourishing and the health of this place? It means if you're in leadership, you walk in asking, what would it look like if my organization reflected the character of God more fully? Or what would it look like if my industry reflected the character in the kingdom of God more fully? And what can I do to nudge and influence in that direction? It's a posture of generosity. God is generous in creating. He wants us to be generous in working. Now, the reality of this is that all of us experience work in a way that's far more complex, isn't it? In fact, for some of us, work is a crushing experience. But what this text calls us to is that even if work is a crushing experience, it calls us to look away from our work, look back to God and say, God, the pathway to my vocation is not just career success, it's knowing you more so that I can reflect you more deeply. All right, a little bit of implications about what that means for work, but now let's shift over to family relationships and community. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Now, this is the beginning of the Bible's teaching on marriage, family, sexuality. Everybody take a deep breath. It's also the beginning of uh, God's teaching about the people of God and how the community of Israel and then the church and even wider society is meant to work. Now, this is going to bring up a bunch of conversations and a bunch of questions and probably a bunch of concerns that we're not going to be able to address in this moment. But we want to invite those questions, invite those concerns, we want to talk about it, so please do that. That's part of how we help each other learn, okay? But it's important that we look at this vision because this is a vision for a vocation as it relates to family and relationships that's not meant to enslave us, quite the opposite. This was addressed, remember, to people who had just come out of enslavement, and they had the living memory of a time when Pharaoh had murdered many of the children of Israel, and therefore God is here saying, I'm in the, in the context of freedom, I'm going to show you what how to express that freedom in the context of family in such a way that flourishing can spread out into the wider community. It's a glorious vision. Let's look at it. Marriage, in this passage, male-female multiplication, is designed to reflect God's purposes in the world. Last week, we talked about communion. Do you remember this? We, we weren't talking about the sacrament. We were talking about how, according to Genesis, God created us for a very particular kind of relationship with him. It's implied in the idea that we're made in his image. And we said that communion is about intimacy and differentiation, both together. Uh, God and humanity are very, very different, and yet despite our differentiation, we're called into a closeness of relationship, and that closeness in relationship is not 
uh, canceled by our differentiation, but it's actually enhanced. Bring that to marriage. Because in verses 27 and 28, God creates humanity. And when uh, God speaks of creating humanity in his image as both male and female differentiated, and together they are to bring forth children, what's happening there is that God is designing the family to be a little, to, so that families experience a little taste of the communion we're ultimately supposed to enjoy with God. So when God establishes these families, he wants the husband and the wife to experience a kind of communion with each other, closeness in relationship with differentiation. And their communion, in a small way, reflects the communion that God wants to call all of us into with himself. But the communion between husband and wife, it's meant to break out and grow. God wants the husband and the wife to multiply, to have children so that their children can grow up with, in a context where each person in the family is differentiated and yet deeply embraced by all the rest. And the idea is that through this family, the husband and the wife with the children end up being kind of like a school or a training ground for communion. So that ideally, a child might be able to grow up within a family like this and say, I grew up in a family where I experienced something of communion. I experienced closeness with differentiation. And I saw it when I watched my parents love each other, and I experienced healthy uh, sibling relationship, and that experience helped me understand the kind of relationship that God wanted to draw me into. The relationship with God is bigger and realer and deeper than anything I experienced in my family, and yet I got a little taste of it early on. God's purpose is to draw humanity into communion with himself, and the family is meant to reflect that dynamic on a very small scale, and then families are meant to support a community, the people of Israel, or the church, and then a wider society where these healthy relationships are going on. But here we need to stop, don't we? Because there's a problem. Do you feel the problem? The problem is that when we describe a vision of a family like this, it almost certainly aggravates profound pain and profound anger and disappointment. Why? Because not one of us has experienced family like this. And for some of us, our experience of family has been an unmitigated horror. What does that mean? And one of the odd things is that when you read the Bible, you start with the first page and you've got this glorious vision of a family and then you've got 66 books of train wrecks. All the families in the Bible are train wrecks. Come with me with a counterexample. I dare you. Why? What does it mean that our experience doesn't match this vision? It doesn't match this vision with respect to family. It doesn't match this vision with respect to work either, does it? There's a lot to say, but it, we can say at least this. The rest of the Bible tells us that we need a better family. And the rest of the Bible tells us that we need desperately 
to be adopted into the one family that experiences perfect communion, the one family that experiences perfect closeness of bond with differentiation. It means we need to be adopted into the family of God in a deep way adopted into the family of the Holy Trinity. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came as God's perfect image, God's perfect king, royal ambassador and greater. And central to Jesus' mission is that he came representing the Father in order to arrange our adoption into his family, that, the family that we need but we've never experienced. And it, you can see this on the first page of the Gospel of John. Speaking of Jesus' mission, it says, To all who received him, who believed in Jesus' name, Jesus gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, meaning not having to do with your physical family, but rather born of God. Jesus came to arrange our adoption. He experienced all the horror that haunts our souls all the way to the point of death on the cross. And friends, I emphasize the adoption of Jesus because we will never experience our vocation until we first experience the adoption of Jesus. Listen, you may work very hard and you may be very successful, but your work will own you. And some of you, it's owning you right now. You may live for your family or your friends, but your family and your friends, you'll need them too much and they will deliver too little. And the, your, the vision, your desires for your family will always be falling short. And the reason is that we are called to a vocation that's bigger than what can be filled by our careers and it's bigger than what can be filled by any of our families. We are called to know God as our adopted father and to spend our lives re representing him and reflecting his beauty into this world. And that'll never happen until you experience his adoption and as you uh, internalize the implications of that adoption ever more deeply. And as you do that, it'll change everything. It'll transform how you go to work. You'll go with freedom. It won't, it won't own you because you'll belong to Jesus. And therefore, you're, therefore, you'll be able to walk in with security and creativity and generosity. And it'll transform your relationships. Because the Lord gathers not just physical families, but the spiritual family of God where people who are married and people who have physical families and people who are bound together in the deeper ties of the spiritual life come together and we need all of us together, all of us together reflecting to one another the beauty of Jesus Christ, telling each other the story of Jesus's grace, particularly and uniquely reflected in your experience and in your life and particularly describing the healings that you've experienced and how the grace of Jesus has been enough for you in your particular background and story. And as we share those stories, the mosaic image of Jesus Christ becomes more clear before our eyes and we're able to behold the beauty that we are called to reflect. And that's how the Lord wants this church to become an image and a reflector of his beauty. Amen. Hello everyone, my name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. 
Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.